You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Revelation 20, we started it last week. We'll do a little more this week and we'll finish it next week. We've made it through the whole book of Revelation. We've spent over a year really setting the context for this. I mentioned last week this can be quite a controversial chapter. It's where we get this mention of this thousand-year reign of Christ, this period of time called the millennium. And most of last week I spent laying down why I believe in the doctrine known as pre-millennialism. That is the belief, like we said, that Christ will return before this period where he rules and reigns on earth. That was the historical view of the early church. That is the view I believe you get clearly from reading the Old Testament prophets. It fits the chronology of Revelation, and it takes the text in the most straightforward manner that you can without spiritualizing it. We won't recap that. But if you remember by way of contrast, we were in Revelation chapter 19 before that. That is really a climax in the book of Revelation, that amazing scene where the armies are gathered together to try and fight against the Lord. And you have that picture where it says the heavens are opened, the Lord breaks through into this earth for the first time in 2,000 years, in that way, riding on that white horse with the armies of heaven behind him. It's a magnificent scene. It's supposed to be awe-inspiring and get our attention. It's a kingly scene. He has the scepter. He had the crown. He had the weapon of warfare, which was said to be the sword coming from his mouth, which is his own word, the word of God. It says he comes to tread the winepress of the wrath of God, and he does that alone. We are not not there to do that. We are simply there with him to rule and reign after. We are his escort, you might say. He defeats the armies of the beast who had gathered together against him at that time, and thus he is almost ready to set up his kingdom. There are just a few things that he has left to do, and this is what Revelation 20 is about. We covered the first of these last week. Let's read the first three verses for context so we can recap. Father, we pray now as we just read your word, as we turn our hearts and minds towards your wonderful word, Lord. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, all the wonderful things contained within it. We pray that as we study these difficult texts, Lord, we would still see clearly that your son is king and he reigns on high. In Jesus' name, amen. So Revelation 20 verse 1 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Time. Now, we dealt with these verses last week. Remember that scene? The angel comes down and takes Satan into custody. The word there literally means to take into custody and custody, and he imprisons him in the pit. We saw the pit in chapter 9. It was this maximum security area that he uses to confine Satan and those who would follow him. And the reason for this confinement, it says in the text, is so that he will not be able to deceive the nation's any longer. Satan is the ultimate deceiver, the father of lies. He called him, he wants to deceive, and ultimately he wants to keep people from hearing the gospel, from coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He does that through deception. But during this period, he will no longer be able to do that. And I pointed out last week, if you remember, that for those views of the church, within the church, who believe that the church is the kingdom, They have to argue that Satan is now bound in this age 
And I argued, of course, to counter that, that it is very hard to argue that Satan is not able to deceive people and is bound in this current age. You don't have to look far to see that that is not true. It's a big problem for that viewpoint, but we won't go back over that now. So let's get into verse 4, and this is the new stuff. We'll start here. Let's look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So now he moves to another scene. If you can probably notice, there's a lot of complex doctrine in that one verse there. For those of you that have not heard about the mark of the beast, you'll have to go back online and listen to the studies. We've dealt with all of that previously. But he moves to this scene. He's seeing now what I believe are resurrected people who are given thrones to rule and reign with Christ. There are a number of different groups being mentioned here within one verse that are part of this thing we call the first resurrection. We're going to see a number of these different categories in Scripture. You have the first resurrection and what is called the second resurrection. And they are not single events, they are categories, if that's how I want you to think of it. So the first resurrection is a category, not just one single event. Sometimes when you read the Scriptures, it sounds like one event. Remember in chapters 2, 3, and then 4 and 5, we saw the 24 elders sitting on thrones, didn't we? We said that that was the church. Also in Revelation 3, the promise to the church, it says, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with the Father on his throne. To be on a throne in the kingdom was one of the promises of the church. Now just remember, sitting on a throne is not some sort of prize to make you feel good about yourself. The concept of a throne indicates a reigning and a ruling administration responsibility in God's kingdom. That's what it is. Christ is the head and his redeemed people will be ruling with him in that time. In Revelation chapter 5 verse 10, we saw this expressed quite explicitly. It says, the song of the redeemed, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. So that shows us this is not just a spiritual kingdom that it's talking about here. It specifically says they will reign upon the earth. And then back it says, and judgment was given to them. Back in our current verse, and judgment was given to them. Now judgment is a broad term in Greek used quite broadly in scripture. It's not just simply the aspect of passing sentence. Like I said, it's often used with the equivalent of king or ruler. The idea again is that the saints who are part of the first resurrection will be ruling with Christ in his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2, it says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? The saints will judge the world on their thrones. If you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's book, Chronicles of Narnia, the book or the film, actually, they, they get this across You remember the story, Aslan, C.S. Lewis, a Christian, using the the Bible as an analogy here. Aslan is the Jesus figure, the Messiah in the C.S. Lewis. The White Witch, obviously, is the satanic element. And they have this final battle at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. And, of course, Aslan comes at the last moment, and he defeats everyone with the breath of his mouth, the, the whole point of turning them from stone. You remember the story. And then there's a small scene 
It's bigger in the books, but small in the movie too, they get it. After the war is done, the White Witch is defeated, it shows you all the princes in their kingdom, in Narnia. The snow is gone, Narnia is there, and they're all sitting on thrones in the throne room. You remember that scene? If you go and look at it, you Google it, like, or re read about it. That's, this is where he's getting that from. The idea is Aslan won the war, and now the princes who are following Aslan rule the kingdom with him. He's obviously the ultimate king, and that's, this is the same idea that's being presented. He captures that very well. And then verse 4 again, he says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So now he focuses on another group that will be part of what we call the first resurrection. And this is those saints who have been martyred in the tribulation. Remember, throughout the whole of the book of Revelation, we've seen that as this world government is taking place, this world ruler headed by Satan's man here, trying to have a forged kingdom representing, putting himself at the top of it, basically, one of the things they hate was the name of Christ, anyone who follows Christ, anyone who hates Christians. We don't have to imagine that this is really far out for us to believe. It's, we see this in our world today. Go to many places in the world today where Christians are persecuted simply because they follow Jesus Christ. It's probably the most persecuted people group on the, in the world. We might not know that in our culture right now, but where the church is largest, places like Africa and these places, it's a daily occurrence that they suffer death and persecution for the name of Christ. So it's no surprise that when we're reading about a period of history whereby the church the restraint of the church is gone. Anyone who follows Jesus is fair game for Satan and his army at this time on this earth and all those who follow him. It seems to follow quite logically. He goes for those who follow him, those who says, don't worship the beast. If you remember, halfway through these, this final period of earth's history, he sets up a statue. He says, I want you to worship me now. This is Satan. This is the beast, as we called him, the Antichrist. I want you to worship me as God. And just make sure that you're doing that. We're going to give everyone a mark and you won't be able to participate in the economy if you do not take this. Very similar to much of what goes on in the world in certain governments today. And these people are, if you don't take that, then you're going to be hunted, you're going to be persecuted and most likely killed. It says they're beheaded. The word is actually quite broad. It just kind of means executed. But that's, that's what happened must have been a very hard existence for anyone to survive, really, who was not willing. It's hard to follow Christ, you know, like in that respect. We understand that a little bit today, I believe. Some people in the world understand it much better than us, I would argue. In this age, in the tribulation, I believe they really understand what that means. Saying yes to Jesus most likely meant saying goodbye to your physical life at that time. But because of the promises of Jesus, they knew they were in that period of history. They're so close to the kingdom that we're just reading about in Revelation 20 being set up. They knew that nothing could compare to what they were going to receive from Christ. And it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So here we see that those who had been killed for the name of Christ, they are now resurrected and they share in the government of the kingdom. The word came for life there is the very same word that is used of Christ's resurrection in chapter 2 verse 8 where it says, these things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life, speaking of Jesus. So that's how we know this is a resurrection context. Verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And this is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. You see why I said I can't rush through this. There is a lot in these verses. A lot of these concepts are quite, quite in-depth. The rest of the dead. So this is referring now to a group who are left. I, it sound, it's a little awkward in the, in the English for us, but the idea is basically he's talking about the first resurrection. That is all those who are saved. Whether you're from the church, Christ was the first fruits, his resurrection was the first fruits, then the rapture of the church, then we've just seen the tribulation martyrs who were resurrected too. They're all saved, they're all going to rule with Christ. The rest are talking about those who are not saved, who are not part of the first resurrection. They will be part of what we call the second resurrection, which we will talk about in a moment, those who are left. And that happens after the kingdom, we'll get to that. So then it says, this is the first resurrection. That's referring back to the martyrs who have been resurrected. So we have mentioned here two specific resurrections divided by a thousand-year kingdom, basically. That's, that's the idea, if I could try and simplify it for you. We find mention of this throughout all of the Bible, but we're given the more details here. Daniel 12, chapter 2. It says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So these are the two resurrections. And this is the important thing to know. Like I've argued, as we're going to talk about the lake of fire and these concepts that are uncomfortable for many people, when God makes life, it is eternal. Even though in our physical existence here we experience physical death, your soul is eternal. God cannot make life that is not like that because life itself is eternal. God is the source of life. It flows logically from understanding God's being. Therefore, there will be a resurrection of those souls because they are eternal. They're not going to be annihilated. They are eternal. And therefore, their eternal existence will either be with God or away from God. That is the logical necessity of why you need this place called hell, except for the issue of sin and judgment added on to that. It flows from understanding God's being. This is what we're getting at here. Jesus mentioned this too, John 5. He says, Do not marvel, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come forth, and those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So there are two. There is a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. That is what we call the first and the second resurrection. It says those who are part of the first resurrection are blessed and holy. Blessed primarily, I, I believe, because they are freed from the power of death that Satan holds over them, and blessed because they're going to be reigning and ruling with Christ in his kingdom. They'll get to be in that era of history. It says, over these, the second death has no power. And we need to talk about this. We need to talk about the idea of birth and death in the Bible as it is presented, because it, 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 once you get your head around it, it's really quite an amazing way to look at the scriptures. What is the second death mentioned here? Okay. If it's one of the blessings that we have, that the power of the, the second death has no power over us, we need to understand what the second death is. We are actually told quite plainly what it is if you just look down to verse 14 in the same chapter. It'll lay it out for you. Couldn't be more clear. The, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That is the lake of fire, more commonly known as hell. This is the final destination for the devil and his angels. It was created specifically for them. And unfortunately for those souls of men that refuse to accept the grace of God and go to the 
the place where God actually intended them to go, they will die in their sins and they will go there too. It is a place of separation, also a place of torment, away from the present of the Lord. This is a hard truth, but it is the truth that we find within the Bible. Scripture knows of two births, two deaths, and two resurrections. We've just talked about the two resurrections, to life and the resurrection of contempt. Let's talk about the births. Everyone is born physically once, right? We all understand that. Everyone's born physically once. The second birth is a spiritual birth. It's what the Bible calls being born again. If you've ever heard that term, if you've ever heard the evangelical church, we always push this experience, you need to be born again. That's what Billy Graham went around the world preaching that for years and years. You, need, you must be born again. This is the idea. That's what the second birth is about. To be born again, you confess your sins and you accept Jesus as Lord. So they are the two births. And then there are the two deaths. The first death is much like the first birth. It occurs at the end of one's physical life. We all understand that. We experience it. We see it in this world all the time. The second death we've just read, that is, occurs, that's the lake of fire. That occurs at the resurrection unto judgment after the kingdom, and it is where all unbelievers will go, that second death. So the idea here, as we've just learned, for those who are believers, i.e. those who are born again, we do not need to fear the second death. If you are born again, the lake of fire, that has no concern to you. That's why it says here, you're blessed because it has no power over you. The fear of the second death has no power over, to, over you. It has absolutely nothing to do with you. That's part of what Christ purchased for you on the cross. That's why it's so important. And you've probably heard it said by Christians before, the idea is if you are born twice, you have the first birth, your physical birth, and your second birth when you're born again and accept Jesus, become a Christian, then you will only die once. You'll have the, the physical death of this earth, but you will never have the second death. This is exactly what Jesus was getting at when he spoke to Martha in John 11. Let me read it to you. John 11:25. He says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies brackets, first death. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, brackets, second death. You understand what, what, what's going on there? How, it's quite a clever sentence that Jesus is making. And then he asks her, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are Christ, the Son of God, who comes into this world. An expression of her faith there, and acknowledging that she will never be part of the second death. Even though she will die the first death physically, it's not really a death for the Christian. It's going into the presence of the Lord. That's the idea here. Jesus makes this point when he's talking to Nicodemus, that rabbi, that seeker who came to him by night to ask questions. John 3, 3, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the kingdom there is talking about what we're talking about here in that future sense. You understand now the chronology of it. You will not see the kingdom of God because you won't be part of the first resurrection if you're not born again. That's the idea here. Later in that same conversation, Jesus gives us that most famous verse that we all know from John chapter 3.16. John 3, it's vital that everyone understands this principle. Like you may have struggled, maybe the first time you've heard a lot of this talk about the kingdom, the chronology, and all these different characters that we've gone through in the book of Revelation, and you'll need to go over it again and again. 
and you will. You can't, you, you know, if it was easy enough that we could just read it once and understand it all, that wouldn't be very good. We'll be searching the word of God until we see the Lord. It's vital we understand this principle, though. If you don't get anything else from the book of Revelation, understand this. You must be born again. That is it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then verse 17 of John chapter 3 says, For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And that's the point here. The second death was really not for mankind. Mankind was to be with him in the kingdom, but if you're not born again, you will not see that. This is the essence of the second birth, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by doing that, the second death has no power over you. You will not experience it. You will not be part of it. And thus, it breaks Satan's ultimate weapon in this world, which is the fear of death. It says that he holds the fear of death over mankind. He always has done. He has that power because he is the one who causes it in many ways. But we need to understand this for all of us now. Nothing else will do it. You think about all the striving of religions in the world and you know, the church included in that. You can claim to be a Christian all you want. You can attend church as faithfully as anyone else on this world every week, as much as you like. You can be involved in every Christian charity and every good work that you can find. You can lift your hands and praise for as many worship songs as you want. You can memorize as much scripture as you can. Ultimately, none of that will get you out of the second death. As good as some of those things are, only being born again will do that. That's what Jesus said. That is the gospel. Only believing in Jesus, the gospel, will get you out of the second death and get you into the first resurrection, the resurrection to life. That is the fundamental message of the Bible. This is why, remember in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer, he cries out to Paul and Silas after that earthquake, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is it. That is our simple message that we have here. Although much of else in the Bible can be complex and it's wonderful, truths that we'll search out for our lives, that is our fundamental point. We want to be part of the first resurrection, the resurrection unto life. To do that, you must be born again. Nothing else will get you out of the second death. Now let's go on in verse 7 and we'll read the next few verses and we'll finish with these verses. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, the false prophet, are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now remember, Satan was bound and sealed in the pit. We read that a few verses earlier. This is the prison that he was put in for the thousand year of the kingdom. But then we have this as an unusual verse. He's now to be released for a little portion. This is a strange portion of scripture, considering it's only a three, three or so verses it raises a lot of questions for us. Why is he released? Why is he allowed out again? Why was he imprisoned and not destroyed in the first place? And who are Gog and Magog that are still around at the end of the kingdom to start a rebellion? These are all big questions. 
Um, I'm going to give you a, a, a to try and engage some of them for you. I'll be honest with you, I'm not going to give you the complete answers. I'm still not there myself on trying to understand some of these issues, but I can share with you what I think are some of the answers to these things. Satan was bound ultimately because Christ must rule over sin on this earth. The prophets foretold a time when Christ would be ruling as king and sin would be removed from this earth to a huge degree, but not entirely or not completely in some ways. It says he will rule the kingdom with a rod of iron and he will have the saints doing that with him. He will rule in perfect righteousness and perfect justice. In order for that to happen, you cannot have Satan, the master deceiver, free wandering around doing his work. That kind of, we can understand that principle there. Satan is a master at getting man's sin nature to come out of him and tempt them into sin. So therefore, the man who lies, the deceptive means, all of his tempting, he had to be confined for this. We, we can kind of understand that principle of if you want the kingdom to be this paradise, you need to have Satan, the master deceiver, removed from it. But it gets a little harder when you think, well, why release him again? That's, that's the hard part. Like, why release him again? Now, yes, we can speculate, you know, to prove that he's still evil, and these are all things that are true. It's a little bit more involved than that. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. The Apostle Paul is talking about this period. And he says, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom, this is Jesus, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Now, the English doesn't read easily there, does it? There's a lot, of, okay? But the idea basically is saying that we learn that every enemy must be put under the feet of Jesus Christ before the purpose for this created order is complete. This universe, this physical cosmos, this created order Everything must be placed under the feet of Christ before it is complete. This is one of the reasons why you need the kingdom. It says that the last enemy is death. Now think about this. What is death? Death is separation from God, ultimately, isn't it? God being the source of life, when we were separated from him, that is what brought death into existence. How was that caused? By sin, who was responsible for that? Ultimately, it was Satan if you tra track it back enough. Satan and death kind of go together. That's why it says, like we said, that he has the power of sin and death and he holds it over people. We learn here, the Apostle Paul says, that the last enemy, death, is ultimately, in many ways, the same as saying Satan must ultimately be abolished. If you want to abolish death, you have to abolish Satan. The two things go together. And it also says that after that is done, things will be handed over to the Father and Jesus will reign with the Father. So that's going into the eternal state, you see. So after that is done, so that can't happen immediately. You go back through the years of human history. It's proven that a fallen world that we live in now, under Satan's dominion in many ways, with sinful man on it, we've tried to rule ourselves for a long time. History is a mess if you read through it, isn't it? 
It's a mess of atrocities going from bloodshed and going back and back. Yes, there are bright spots. There are periods where the gospel has flourished and different rulers have ruled righteously and justly, but never 100% righteously and justly. It's not a perfect system. It never will be. But generally, the story is one of war and bloodshed. And this has proved that ultimately the, the issue is that we cannot rule our own hearts because of that separation from God, that sin nature that we have from Adam. And this also tells us we cannot blame all our sin on the environment. This is something we love to do, isn't it? It's always someone else who's responsible, only some environment. And, and yeah, it doesn't mean that sometimes people aren't contributing to it, but it's much easier to blame the surroundings, the environment, the lot we've had in life. But unfortunately, that excuse doesn't really fly. The ultimate issue comes back to our own hearts. We've had that. That's human history. But now it's saying for this thousand years, this kingdom period, we're going to get to witness what it is like when we allow the Lord to rule over our hearts and to rule over his creation. It's like the final capstone of this created order, highlighting Jesus's authority, his perfect rule, proving that only through Messiah can righteousness and justice prevail. And that's a lesson we all need to learn. But note, during the kingdom, there will be people born into the kingdom, those who survived the tribulation, who will be living and raising children, and the world will be moving on, and God will be intervening on different things. These people still have a sin nature, and they have to make that decision to submit to the Lord too, even though they're living in a perfect environment. People still die, albeit at muchly increased ages. So the reason I'm raising that, and try and follow me here, I know that this is quite complex, but what Paul said about death finally being abolished before the eternal state is obviously not fulfilled in the kingdom completely because you still have people raised, people dying, and that sort of thing like that. So it, although we're living in near perfection in the kingdom under Christ's rule, it doesn't fulfill what Paul said, death has been completely abolished and Satan gone. That is why I believe Satan was not completely destroyed in the first place. He was simply bound for a thousand years. And that is also giving us the reason why I believe he's going to have to be let out again. Because after the thousand years has served its purpose, God is ready now to move into the next phase of history, which is what we call the new heavens and the new earth, or the eternal state. And in order to have that, death must be finally abolished. Paul must fulfill that prophecy, and therefore Satan himself must be finally abolished. But he couldn't have done that for the kingdom. So these two things, I know that there's a lot more you could pick at with that, but that's roughly the idea. I think that's where the answer lies and maybe we'll, we'll get a chance to go into that in a, in a bit more depth one day. But verse 8, it says, He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So we do see that Satan's character and mission remain the same. He hasn't changed. He's up to his old tricks. He's very quickly able to tempt man to follow him. Again, our flesh is weak. Put temptation in front of us. That's what happens. He has been released, ultimately, for that purpose, that he can be crushed, defeated, and abolished once and for all so that God may bring us into the eternal state. This is when Jesus finally fulfills that prophecy and abolishes the final enemy. If Satan had been destroyed before the thousand years, there wouldn't have been a kingdom because Paul just said when, Satan, when, when it's abolished, everything's handed back over to the Father and we move into the eternal state. Christ is not ruling on the throne of David which the prophecies had to be fulfilled. That is why you must have a kingdom. That's why premillennialism is the view I believe is correct in Scripture. And that's also why Satan was bound and not destroyed straight away. 
because you had to have this period where he was actually still around, but he was imprisoned and not allowed to deceive. Now he is released, not really to deceive people, that's just what he does, that's what happens. He's actually released now so that he can be finally killed. <laughs> he can be dealt with once and for all so that we can move in to the eternal state. This is when the enemy is finally abolished. Christ returns all authority to the Father after that. And this is what sets us up for those final two chapters. If you've read the final two chapters of Revelation, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, they're very hard to understand. They're describing things, I believe, that, that are kind of outside of our comprehension. It's going to be interesting to teach through them, but we'll, we will give it a go. But let me, in our remaining time, deal with one more issue. That many of you, if you're into this sort of thing, you're probably wondering what I'm going to talk about. Gog and Magog. It mentions there that when he comes, Satan is released, he comes, he gathers Gog and Magog together for this war, which is not really a war again, but that's it. So the question is, who are they? They're thrown out with very little explanation. And this is a big debate in Christian circles of those who study prophecy. The idea is basically, if you know these kind of topics, you'll recognize those names. They come from the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, that talk about Gog and Magog attacking Israel in the last days at some point. Well, the timing is the, it's a controversial part. There are those within the church, this is the majority view, who take the chapters in Ezekiel, this, this last day's battle against Israel by Gog and Magog, they place those characters, their names from the Bible, Gog is a title actually, it's more like Pharaoh, and Magog was the land, and people say it's Russia, some people say it was the, the region of Turkey. We're not going to go through all of that. We'll save that for an Ezekiel study at another time. But because of the names, people quite often make the association, and they, they either say, well, this war in Revelation 20 is, is the same as what's happening in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then there are those who say, no, the names are the same, but they're actually two different wars. They happen at two different times, one before the kingdom, and then this one in Revelation 20 at the end of the kingdom. Now, to be honest, I've spent a reasonable amount of time now, as I've been knowing I'm going to prepare to teach this passage, trying to understand both of these views. I've read quite a lot of the experts in different areas, and I'll be frank with you, it's one of those areas I don't think we're ever going to get complete certainty on. We just can't. Like, there are too many counter-arguments to their good points and there's counter-arguments to their good points. There are difficulties, as I can tell, with harmonizing both views, which we should expect. You think, you know, we're only humans, how much intelligence do we have compared to dealing with these great themes of Scripture that we have? I won't go into all the technical details, but briefly, if you had to push me right now, I'd probably say, whilst the names are the most obvious similarity, of course, I'm still ultimately unpersuaded that Ezekiel 38 and 39 are the same battle mentioned in Revelation. And primarily that is due to the chronological structure of the book of Ezekiel. Because you have chapters 38 and 39, but remember chapters are not part of the Bible. We, we added chapters for use of study, so it's not good to divide by chapters often. Because if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 36, you have the regathering of Israel in unbelief. 
Now, if you're a pre-mill type guy and you believe in the importance of Israel, that's a very important passage for looking at modern Israel today and saying it's part of fulfilled prophecy because it's the only time a regathering in unbelief has happened like that. And then you get 37, which is the breathing of life, eventually talking to the, the conversion of Israel that we know happens at the end of the tribulation. And then you move on to 38 and 39. And although there are some things that are hard to place, it just seems better chronologically that it happens before the kingdom because then in chapters 40 and 48, you deal with the temple of the kingdom. So if you don't take it like that, you have to start mixing the chapter divisions up and you get a, an unusual chronology. That's just, just one reason that I haven't found expressed or answered clearly. The other one, there's so much in Ezekiel 39 that just seems to fit Armageddon better than it does the end of the kingdom age. The, the invasion in Ezekiel is given specific locations. It comes from the north, particularly, and the lands are given. In Revelation, it is said to be global from all four corners of the earth. And in Revelation, it does read like, we're going to read it in the next chapter, once that battle is done, you move into the eternal state. That doesn't seem to be how Revelation, Ezekiel 39 reads. So they're my reasons why I'm still unpersuaded, but I'm not necessarily convinced either way. So why Gog and Magog? Why, if I'm saying that, why does it still use these names? That is the issue I'm not really sure about. Gog is a title. I know that. You could say Caesar and Pharaoh, and Magog is usually describing the lands of the people that would follow the leader. So it could just be a way of stating that when Satan is released, the leaders of the earth and all those people who they rule will follow him in this small little rebellion against Christ. I'm not really sure. But... I won't go any more into that now. Whatever the case, it says in verse 9, they came up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The broad plain comes from Zechariah. It's describing this temple area in Jerusalem where Israel will be living in the kingdom. You can read that in Zechariah 14. Satan goes straight to Jerusalem. As soon as he's released, he goes straight to the temple. Now, who's ruling in that temple at this time? This is Jesus' temple at this time. This, he's ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. So Satan doesn't waste any time. He knows exactly what he has to do. He's released from the pit. He heads straight to where Jesus is ruling with the intent to try and destroy him. And this shows us, just like when he gathered the armies before when Jesus came in the heavens, he still hasn't understood his place. He is a created being. Jesus Christ is God. And there's going to be no battle. There was no battle then, actually. There's no battle now. Jesus just speaks and he deals with Satan. And this is exactly what happens now. It says, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan is released. He goes to try and get Satan. The Lord says no, rains down fire in heaven, crushes that rebellion. And then this is the final moment now where that text that Paul said, the final enemy to be defeated abolished is death. This is actually where we're reading about that. This is how that happens. So if, if you could imagine in the heavenlies, although it sounds very harsh to our ears, this is actually the cheering moment. This is the grand climax of history, that, that time that everyone has been waiting for in history. All those years of pain, bloodshed, misery, of saints underneath, martyred saints underneath the throne, crying out for their blood to be avenged, all the different things, the destruction we've seen on this earth right now, this is the final moment when the ultimate cause for that is going to be abolished, never to appear again. 
never to be released again. That's why it is that moment. The heavens are rejoicing at this point, and with that, the final revolt of the millennium is now over too. Death can now be finally abolished after this final judgment that we're about to read next time, and then we move into a period, the new era, a new heavens, a new earth, the eternal state, and we'll look at that next time. See, I told you Revelation 20, is not, it's a big chapter. Like, it's the end of the Bible, it should be a big chapter. Um, we'll deal with the, the final part next time. Let's pray. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.